I once heard the president of Fuller Seminary, Mark Laverton, talk about his philosophy of preaching, what it is uh, he tries to do in this uh, task, this opportunity, this opportunity <laughs> that we get to do week after week after week after week after week after week after week. What are we trying to do in this? He said that his philosophy of preaching is to set up a conversation between you and God and then to get out of the way. A conversation between you and God and for the pastor to get out of the way. Now, I don't know if that's my philosophy every Sunday when I stand up and uh, do this. Maybe it should be. But it is my expressed intention today to set up a conversation between you and God and to get out of the way. I'm not trying to set up a legalistic system of how things work, and I'm not trying to tell you how God works in your life. I'm asking us to consider certain things today uh, and to have a conversation with the Lord this week, this day, this year, about what it might mean. I say all that at the beginning because the scripture passage we're going to look at is really hard today. It's really hard. And the implications for our life are really hard. And I want to remind us again and again that the goal of what we're trying to do is to set up a conversation between you and God, and I want to get out of the way of that, okay? We're in the sixth week of our rescued teaching series here at Covenant, and the scripture passage uh, we're going to be looking at is from the last verse of Exodus 31, and then the first eight verses of Exodus 32. And I invite you just to listen to God's word to us today. When God finished speaking with Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of the covenant, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered around Aaron and said to him, come make gods for us who shall go, uh, go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Aaron said to them, Take off the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took the gold from them, formed it in a mold, and cast an image of a calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a festival to the Lord. They rose early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought sacrifices of well-being. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to revel. The Lord said to Moses, go down at once. Your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have acted perversely. They have been quick to turn aside from the way that I commanded them. They have cast for themselves an image of a calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would speak to us all today. No matter who we are or how we walk in here, speak to us your gospel, your good news. And may it teach us what an abundant life truly looks like. We pray for this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, I need you to know that when I first came to faith, this scripture passage seemed just totally ridiculous to me, right? Uh, like, who would do this? I don't even know what reveling in front of a golden calf is. I don't think I've done that before. But it sounds like 
kind of a, it just sounds like a, a weird thing for, for people to do, especially after what they've seen, right? Like you think back over the chapters we've looked at and what the people have seen, it just seems like an immature and a very kind of like almost made up response, right? I mean, think about the fact they were in slavery for 500 years in Egypt, and then all of a sudden uh, they have a cry out to God. God sends them a deliverer from Midian, this, this uh, foreign land who uh, comes to them, Moses and uh Moses with his brother-in-law Aaron by themselves go into the court of Pharaoh saying, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, I don't think so. And so Moses through, I mean, God through Moses performs these miracles, these 10 miracles. And at the end of it, the people see that uh, Pharaoh actually lets them go. They go and start traveling northwest to the Red Sea and they get there and Pharaoh changes his mind and the army of Egypt comes up to corner the people and to kill them and they cry out to God and God says again, I've got you in this and then separates the water. They pass through, the water consumes the army of uh, Pharaoh and the people are delivered and what's their response to that? They start complaining that they don't have any water to drink. And so God says, all right, I told you, I've got this. And so he tells Moses to take his staff and to uh, tap a rock in the, in the wilderness, in the desert, and water comes from the rock, and the people drink of it. And then what do they do? They complain again. And they're like, well, we don't have anything to eat. And God says, I'm telling you, I've got this. And so starts giving them manna from heaven every day. As we sing in, a, in the great hymn of the church, morning by morning, they wake up and, and God has provided food for them again. And now they come to Mount Sinai, having seen all of these miracles. And Moses goes to the top and they wander away from God and make a golden statue because Moses takes too long. It's like, Seriously? Like, can you give him a minute to get down the mountain? I think it's funny. Can you give him a minute to, like, come down the mountain, right? I mean, Moses is getting up there in his age. He's having to come down Mount Sinai with multiple stone tablets. It's like, just give him a minute to come down, right? And they create a new God. I was like, I don't get that. And I love what the scriptures say. They reveled in front of it. I love when the scripture, it's like what it describes and what it leaves out. We're like, we're not going to go into any details of that. They revel in front of the golden calf. I was like, I've never done that. That's weird. I decided to share that wisdom in seminary with one of my professors of how little sense this passage made, an Old Testament professor nonetheless, who said to me, well, it's not really about that. This is more about people not getting what they want how they want it, when they want it, and then taking matters into their own hands, which makes a mess of things. It's not about a golden calf. It's about people not getting what they want, how they want it, when they want it, and making a mess of things because they decide to take initiative and take over and take control. Now, I've never reveled in front of a golden calf, but in terms of making a mess out of situations, because I took control when things weren't going how I want it, when I want it, the way I want it. I have like an advanced degree in that. And I might not be the only one in this room. One of the things that this passage forces us to look at that can be difficult to sit with is this. When we think about the difficult, broken situations in our lives and in our world where we would love for God to show up and rescue us, sometimes we are the authors of the brokenness. We are the ones who choose 
the pain and the brokenness in our lives, in the lives of people we love, and in the world and in the society around us in which we live. Now, you might be sitting there right now going, you don't know what's going on in my life, and how dare you say that I'm the cause of it? And that's where I want to go back very seriously again to the goal of this. I am not telling you how God always works. I am not creating a legalistic system. I am asking you to consider something that is very difficult to consider and to set up a conversation between you and God that I want to get out of the way of. And what you and the Lord do with it is between you and the Lord. I'm asking you to consider something and just rest in it for a minute. Because see, friends, if indeed sometimes you and I are at least the contributors, if not the authors of the brokenness that exists and the pain that exists in our life and in the world around us, then the loving response of God, when we can contribute to the pain and the brokenness, the loving response of a God who rescues is not to step in and magically fix it as fast as possible because we don't learn anything in that. We don't grow, and we're destined to just repeat patterns over and over and over again. Some days, the way that God rescues us is by not immediately and miraculously stepping in. I'm trying to set up a conversation between you and God, and I want to get out of the way of it. Think about it like this. Uh, one of the most common images, probably the most common image for God in the scriptures is that of a parent, right? Uh, being a parent is challenging. It's sometimes hard to know what to do and what's best for your uh, child or your children. Uh, as I am a parent of two daughters, I uh, do what I think all parents do is I try to watch other parents, especially those whose children are a little bit older, and to kind of learn from them, right? Sometimes you see parents do something you're like, that is awesome. I totally want to do that. Sometimes you learn by watching and going, I never want to do that with my child. But you're always watching and observing, right? So that you can hopefully be informed into the ways to parent that you do it. I was in Richmond, Virginia several years ago visiting uh, a friend of mine, and his children are like five, six years older than mine. And so I, I enjoyed watching how they, he and his wife were interacting uh, with their child. And I walked in this one day, and there was like real tension in the household. And he said, yeah, we're having a, a, a kind of problem because of a grade. And their, their oldest daughter at that time was a junior in high school. And like many of our youth today, she was all really stressed out about grades and SATs and what college to get into and what was the class rank and how did it go. And that anxiety was very real and it was becoming difficult. And so they were trying to, to walk that line of like how to equip her to deal with that stress and to continue to thrive and yet to also not micromanage her, right? Because when your children are younger, you're trying to more like go with this. I'm going to do this with you. Here's how we do this. As you get older, there's that line that you're always trying to figure out of how do I let you make decisions and yet how do I step into that? And so the attention they were having was because they had, um, uh, her, their daughter had started uh, finding a way to sort of decompress on weekends when she wasn't with her friends and something she started doing was watching a show on Netflix, right? And she got into this show and it was a way that she could come home from school and just get like half an hour, 45 minutes uh, and then kind of get into whatever homework or things she needed to do. Well, she came home this one day, and she had a, a paper due in a class. And again, she made very good grades in this class she was doing really well in. 
And they said, okay, so you got this paper due early next week. Do you want to get ahead and work on it this week? And she's like, no, man, you guys are stressing me out by like, even asking about it. I'm going to hang out with my friends this weekend. I'm going to well, watch this show a little bit. I'll worry about it on Monday. It's not due until Tuesday. And they're like, okay, um, that's fine. Those are your choices, and that's how you do things. But just be aware on Monday you're going to have to get all this done, and it's a lot. She said, okay, come home from school on Monday. And that afternoon they're like, okay, so we got this paper, and what else do you need to do? And she's like, you guys are stressing me out again. Like, I'm just going to go watch. It's the season, it's the season uh, ending show of the show I've been watching. I'm just going to watch that before dinner. I'm just going to chill out a little bit, and then I'm going to have dinner, and then I'll get on it. Like, I'm doing well in the class. Stop stressing me out about this. They said, okay, it's your choices. So she goes upstairs. They comes down for dinner, and they're like, did the season end well? And they're like, yeah, yeah, it was really cool. And they said, so we're going to get into the paper now after dinner. And it's like, yeah, but it was part one of a two-part season ending, and so I need to watch the second part because I can't watch the first part. And they're like, are you sure that's a smart decision? They're like, yeah, I, I'm making an A in this class. Like, quit putting this on me about how this is supposed to work. They're like, okay, it's your decision. They go up to a room like an hour and a half after dinner, and she was like, yeah, but it led right into season, the next season, and I just want to watch this one thing go. They're like, all right, if you're certain, but this, I got the paper in my head. That's what she kept saying. I've got it in my head. I know what I'm saying. I've already got it done. So she stayed up really late writing the paper, turned it in the next day, and a few days later, she got the grade. Now, she did well, but it wasn't as well as what she wanted to do and what she needed to get in the college she wanted to, so she came down upset. Now, all of you who are like math and engineers here, you're like, this is what I love about engineering, is that papers are difficult because they're subjective. And like, the teacher kind of gets to, it's not like math, where it's like, you got that wrong or you got that right. Papers are more subjective in the grading. And she came home because she didn't get the grade she was accustomed to, and she's like, the teacher graded this too hard. So she handed the paper to her parents, and they read it, and they said, honestly, maybe she was right, that it seemed pretty harsh in terms of the standards. And she said, do you know what I think you should do? I think you all should write my teacher and see if the grade can be raised. Which, if you are a high school teacher administrator, and if you are a college professor, you know this is becoming more and more and more common for students into their 20s, for their parents to be weighing in on this stuff. And her mom and dad looked at her and said, no, we are not going to write. They said to her, we actually could help you raise your grade and stunt your growth. Sometimes the loving thing when we are the authors of our own pain is to not step in and magically fix it. And that's really hard to understand that that might take the form at times of how God rescues us. Now, it's not that God res rescuing isn't real. God rescues us by saying, my arms are always open to you. You can always learn my ways. You can always return. My doors are never closed on you. I'm never too disappointed. I never turn away from you. But it's not by coming in and just magically making everything okay. Sometimes you and I are the authors of our own pain. And what I want to invite us to consider today is what do we do about that? What do you and I do about that? Because if we say we want to consider whether we are the authors of the pain in the world around us, we might look at it and be like, well, okay, well, I've got this pain here, but I think I'm doing a great job in that. And part of what you and I as people of faith need to do is go, we can't be the judge and the jury of how well we're doing in situations because we create constructs that reinforce how we want it to work. But as people of faith, what you and I need to do at times, if we're really going to learn and change, is that we need to ask the question, what is God's design for how this situation works? And how faithful am I being to what God desires in this situation? You see the difference in that? It's not about going, like, I think I'm doing great. 
but it's about going, what does God expect, or how did God create this to work, and am I faithfully living into that vision? What I want you to do is look at the pain in your life and ask that question. I'm not trying to tell you how it works. I'm trying to set up a conversation between you and God. What's God's design for how some of this stuff's supposed to work? And then I want to get out of the way and leave that between you and the Lord. Now, we're going to end with this. That might seem abstract, and it is abstract. So here's what I want to do. I want to bring up two examples. The first example is a personal one in terms of like in our individual lives, what this process might look like of saying what's God's design in this and how do I respond and how faithful I'm being. And the second one is a more corporate societal one. It's not for you to memorize these. This is for you to have an example of how to apply this question to your situation, okay? First one we're going to bring up is this. It's going to be marriage. There are all kinds of multi-million dollar businesses that tell you how marriage is supposed to work. And, uh, and they might be good. I don't know. But I think the best definition, the best understanding of what marriage is supposed to be comes from uh, the passage of Scripture that goes into the most detail uh, in the New Testament. It's 12 verses in Ephesians chapter 5 where the Apostle Paul is talking about uh, Christian households and how they're to function. And these 12 verses about marriage to me are absolutely the most amazing things to look at for how a marriage thrives. Okay? Now, the good news is, because we don't have time to read all 12 verses and analyze them, the Apostle Paul would be thrilled to know that this is my nine-word sum-up of his 12 amazing verses that he wrote. But this, to me, is essentially what he says a Christian marriage is supposed to be. Each spouse daily seeking to be the servant of the other. I think he's talking about two equal spouses seeking to outserve each other, which is a much more detailed and robust definition than just love each other. We're just going to be in love, right? Marriages don't break, I heard someone say last week. They don't break, they erode. And this is daily what we are called to do. We are each spouse daily seeking to be the servant of the other. That's what love is. Love biblically means to serve. You and, we are to be in marriages where we seek to outserve the other and trust that our spouse is doing the same for us. What does that look like in practice? Well, we have to understand then not only that that's what the call is supposed to be, but then we have to figure out what serving our spouse actually looks like because how we express love and how we think we're serving may not be how our, our spouse understands or receives the language they speak. Some of the worst literature ever written in the history of creation is Christian literature on dating and marriage. It is some of just the worst. But one book that's pretty good is Chapman's book on love languages because that's what he's trying to get at. He's trying to say how you might think think you're expressing love and service may be a different language than what your spouse is speaking. I have had to learn that because in Chapman's five love languages, my wife, her love language are acts of service, okay, which don't feel all that romantic to me. But the fact is, it's not about if I think it's loving and romantic. It's not to her. So I can get into trouble because I can drive and I can go to work and I'm like between meetings, I'm like, you know what's going to be nice? I'm going to send her a little text. I love you. I love you so much. I think you're beautiful. Everything else. And what she is hearing in that is the bed's not made. I guess I'll take care of the kids' orthodontist appointment carpools this afternoon. And sure, don't worry about dinner. I'll take care of that too. I love you so much. I think you're pretty, right? She's like, we're not eight anymore. This would be really helpful for you to do. 
So the most romantic thing I did for my wife last week, and you are going, please, we don't want to know. No, the most romantic thing I did for my wife last week was I vacuumed. Seriously. If she, yeah, I vacuumed. That's right, folks. That's right. We had to move a couch from one room to the other, and I was late to get to something. And instead of just rushing out the door and saying, okay, well, the room's cleared out, before leaving, I pulled a vacuum cleaner out and vacuumed the entire room to clean up the room where the couch was going to go so that it was clean when the couch went in. And she came in at the end of it, and she was like, I love you so much. (laughs) Now, you might be sitting there going, that is weird. I'm not trying to be married to you. I'm not trying to outserve you. That's not my goal. My goal is to seek to outserve my wife. And to her, this is what makes sense. When we get into places in our marriage, which all marriages do, where it's not working the way that you know and hope that it ultimately will, we don't go look for the latest YouTube speaker on the latest craze and how to ignite your marriage. We go back to Ephesians chapter 5 and saying, how faithfully are we living into the very clear call of God about marriage and intimacy and joy are supposed to work? That's where we go. So how often are you and I in our lives looking at what is God's design for this and how faithful am I living into that? And there are times in those hard conversations I have to look at going, I'm not doing, I'm not making the bed. So if you, the healthiest question you can ask me about my marriage is just in passing, you'd be like, are you making the bed today? No, I'm being serious with you. Because that's not where I naturally go. And when I don't naturally go there, what I essentially am saying to my wife is I don't really care all that much. My job's out server. Therefore, I want to do what I'm supposed to do in that. What's another one? This is the second one. We'll finish with this. It's about uh, our current political climate, which everyone wants to talk about right now. <laughs> right? I don't know if you're aware of this. There's a national election that's coming up uh, in November. You may have heard a rumor or two about it. And uh, what are we to do, right? This is a time where it seems like people are often in two camps. Either people are totally checked out because they're fatigued by the political process in this country generally, and it's like, I don't even want to hear about it. Or we are adamantly professing our side and how it should work, and everybody else is just wrong which is part of why everyone else in the middle is fatigued. And so we have to ask ourselves the situation, what do we do in that? Because so much of what's also fatiguing is this great polarization that exists in our country right now. And what I don't believe is that any politician can fix that. I don't think that Washington is just this entity that is like, oh, it's just broken. Washington's reflecting our society right now. And we are in very polarized times, whereas one sociologist says, and I've said this here before, but it's so important because we all do it, we are living in echo chambers of our own self-righteousness, and the left and the right do it equally. Echo chambers of our own self-righteousness, where we can choose the news that we look at to reinforce the viewpoint we already have. We can uh, join in small groups with people that reinforce the viewpoint we already have. We can forward articles on Facebook that reinforce the viewpoint of what we already have. We can surround ourselves with people and choose to leave others out or block them on Facebook who who give us a different point of view. And we can only surround ourselves with this place where we're like, well, everybody's just, I don't even know how anyone could agree with us or disagree with us. We're just so right and everybody else is just so wrong. I had people 
and you may have as well, after the 2016 election, when President Trump was elected, I had people that I know and care about who looked at me and was like, I voted for President Trump, and I don't know anyone who didn't. Everyone I know voted for, I don't get what the controversial thing is about this. And I had people I know and love and respect who were like, I didn't vote for him, I don't know a single person in my life who did support President Trump. That is the problem. That's the whole problem, and Washington is mimicking the patterns you and I have in our lives. And Jesus, it turns out, has a lot to say about what you and I as Christians are called to do. And living in echo chambers of our own liberal or conservative self-righteousness is not a Jesus option. And if you don't like that, take it up with him. This is not my opinion. Look, for example, at what he says in Matthew 5. You heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? He is saying to us what David Brooks says, that we need to not look for policy answers to this. So much of this starts with what Brooks says, our social fabric weavers that we need at local levels, choosing the people we love, as we see here, pray for as we see here, and even bless as we see here. I'm not asking you in that to surrender your personal political persuasion necessarily. But what I am saying is that we can learn from each other, pray for each other, bless one another, because sitting and mimicking our society by being in echo chambers of our own self-righteousness is not the Lord's call. When we look at the brokenness and polarization in our political problem, it's easy to point the finger out, say it out and go, it's there. They're the ones who are at fault. Instead of starting with the question of how do I contribute to the brokenness that exists in the world today? If thousands and thousands and millions of Christians took this call seriously, it would be far more transformative than any one elected official coming into power in Washington, D.C. golden calf forces us to sit in that question. When we see the brokenness in our world or in our families or in our society, to consider the question of how much do we contribute to the brokenness around us. To set up a conversation between you and God for me to get out of the way. Guys, I have a lot of pain in my life just like you. I'm not telling you it's your fault. I want you to hear that. I'm not telling you it's your fault. I'm not telling you God is punishing you. I'm not saying that. We have pain that is inflicted on us by other people that can take our breath away in its ugliness and brutality. And it's not our fault. We can have pain inflicted to us by circumstances in this world that we can't control that change the trajectory of our lives. But sometimes we are contributors to these situations as well. And a mature perspective of faith is realizing the way that God rescues us is wanting us to see it and learn from it and grow from it. I wonder if indeed we ask God's design in the places of brokenness in our life, if we had a conversation with God about what that looks like in the places of pain for us, 
I wonder what it is God might say to us. Lord, we ask that you would be with us all this day, that you would speak to us, that you would help us to learn and grow if there are places we need to learn and grow about our call in this world. And I pray, Lord, that you would allow us to mimic and move in the directions that we see your call leading us. We ask for this and pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.